What's up, everyone? This is another intro to a fantastic episode of Elbows Tight Podcast. John, how was that interview today? I really enjoyed it. I thought it was good, motivating. It's good stuff to hear. Yeah, we have a Roy Dean Black Belt, Mr. Rick Ellis, on today's episode. Uh, you can look up on Roy Dean's YouTube page, and his Black Belt demonstration is called No Mercy for Old Men, right? Yeah, it was a really good one. Yeah, he is a he started jiu-jitsu a little bit later in life, kind of like a couple of people in our class. He started at 41 years old, and he is now a black belt. Um, and his, his journey through jiu-jitsu is a very interesting one, especially starting a little bit later in life. Uh, it definitely gives me hope that John can receive his black belt. <laughs> <laughs> I can assure you I'm not remotely worried about it. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's it's a great interview. He goes over how, how he got into jiu-jitsu, how jiu-jitsu first started for him. He was in a taekwondo dojo with dirty mats that he never that were never cleaned it was it was terrible it, but it's pretty funny we have a lot of good laughs uh i poke fun of him right at the get-go i shouldn't do that i feel kind of bad about it now but uh other than that he's it's it was a whole lot of fun his he's a very analytical thinker because he's a programmer and and techie and whatnot and you could honestly tell the way he answers the questions too is he's very he thinks about things it, it, he doesn't just blurt things out. There's moments of like, he's yeah, like, a nice pause, mindful, yeah. really thinking of the answer, not just coming at you with a, a bogus answer. Yeah, it was great. He's uh, it was a really, really good interview. So probably one of my favorites in a while. And it was like very, I felt like relaxed and chill. You know, <laughs> yeah, I was even drinking a bang. You know, that was my my drink for today. Oh yeah, yeah. My, let's go Miami ahead do, Cola bang. Yeah, let's go ahead and do beverage of the day. Uh, I feel like garbage today, so I'm drinking a zero sugar uh, Gatorade. So it was delicious. It's probably my favorite one. And then John, like he said, he's drinking his Miami Cola. If you guys have never had the Miami Cola bang, you're messing up. That's like the best one, easily the it's best. Pretty one. good. So. Um, but other than that, John, you got anything else, man? No, nah, but I think um, anyone late 30s and up would probably get a lot of good information on this one on how to have some longevity in our jiu-jitsu. Yeah, absolutely. So, And with that being said, don't forget to like, subscribe on uh, YouTube. Go ahead and give us a five-star review on iTunes. We're at 16 five-star reviews, I think it is, uh, which is great. We're getting up there now, man. Like. Once we hit 20, John and I are going to release a video of us rolling together. We haven't rolled together in a while, actually. So you can check out our website, also elbowstight.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, all social medias, Elbows Tight Podcast everywhere. So, But and got anything else? Thank you guys so much for listening and watching, and hopefully you guys enjoy the episode. We'll catch you later. Peace. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Elbows Tight Podcast. It's your host, Travis and John. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, man. How are you doing? I am. I've been better. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> it's Saturday. My body's a little achy. I was going to go to open mat today, but I figured no one was going to be there because everyone's in a competition. But uh, come to find out in our, our text message group, a bunch of people were there. So now I feel like a piece of junk because I didn't go to open mat. <laughs> you know, and I really wanted to watch the competition. It's the first one we really had closed since COVID started. Yeah. That's open. I wish I could have watched it. Yeah, you should have competed. No, I'm good right now. <laughs> next time, next time. So, and then today's guest, we have the amazing Mr. Rick Ellis. How are you doing today, Rick? I'm doing fantastic, guys. I appreciate you having me on today. This will be really fun for me. Appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. So, without any further ado, let's go ahead and just jump straight into who you are. Can you get, tell the people at home who you are? You know, I'm still trying to figure that out. So, <laughs> I don't know if I'll have a, a great answer for you. So, I am, um, I'm a black belt, jiu-jitsu black belt under Roy Dean. I was his seventh black belt, and I hold the distinction of being one of his very first students when he opened his academy in Oregon. I was living in Oregon at the time in Bend, Oregon. I met him as a brown belt. He was up there teaching a small seminar, and we kind of hit it, hit it off, and he was talking about how he wanted to open an academy somewhere. And so me and a guy named Jimmy, we begged him to open it in Oregon and he did. And so I, I became his first student. Um, so on the jujitsu side, that's, that's who I am. Uh, I have a background in tech. I have been a programmer. I have been, um, you know, I've, I've always been in creative realms. I, I've been a programmer. I've been a, a graphic designer. I've been a musician. I've been an audio engineer. I've done a ton of things in life, but 
Uh, most recently, I, I run a jujitsu academy and uh, I do some silly YouTube content. So, so that's who I am. Well, thank you very much. How, so one thing with your black belt demonstration is uh, it was no mercy for old men because you're, yeah. you're, you're in your twilight years. Maybe I guess some people twilight. would say. Twilight. <laughs> no. He's so he, he's a rough he's rough no, when it comes kidding. to this. He's rough. No, no I just kidding. no, but so apparently my video light is not powerful enough to fill in the cracks. <laughs> no, so how how old were you when you started uh, jujitsu? I was I, I think I was forty one, um, forty one, forty two, and I, I started training with a bunch of taekwondo guys who knew nothing about grappling on on a wrestling mat, but literally never got cleaned. Oh. Uh, and I'm, I'm horrified now. I think back in time and it, no, nobody cared in those days. So, but yeah, I think I was 41. I was way too late. You know, I, I, I call myself a late bloomer because I tend to do, I literally do everything late in life. And, and I don't know what that is. Um, you know, sometimes I say, well, it's a, on, on the positive side, I, I am sort of willing to do as Roy Dean says, he says, you follow your bliss, man. You're just always following your bliss. And that's kind, kind of true. I, I just do what I feel like I do what I enjoy doing. And it kind of doesn't matter how old you are. Uh, it kind of matters in a way to do jujitsu because it gets harder every year, but um, yeah, I was way too old and I'm still at it. So <laughs> that John, John started yeah, about the same age. Yeah. Right? I was a, a few months from turning 40 when I started and yep. uh, you know, I didn't, it didn't feel too different the first couple of years, but now going into the third, I'm starting yeah. to feel it a little bit differently, uh, especially when I'm rolling with the guys that are, 20 years old and they seem to never get tired but you know yeah i've done this fun. long enough that now i'm starting to realize that every decade feels different <laughs> and, yeah. you know yeah and i i felt pretty good you know even leading up into my 50s I, I felt pretty good but just in the last year or two like i mean stuff just hurts man stuff just hurts in a way that it didn't hurt before and you know recovery becomes a problem you have to pay a little more attention to not matching the intensity of those guys that are bringing it really hard. And, you know, you got to put that ego away and say, you know what, I, I got to train tomorrow. I'm just going to go light and, and stick to that because it really gets harder and harder. If you're not careful managing your output, managing your recovery, your sleep, your nutrition, all that stuff really matters way more as you get older, but it's possible, you know, it's possible to be uh, an old geezer and still do it. So I'm, <laughs> I'm living proof. Yeah, so what drew you to uh, jiu-jitsu then? You know, like most of us, UFC won. Ah. It, I, a friend of mine, I, I missed that first event. I was actually living in Cancun in 1993. I was playing in a rock band at the time, and that's a, another crazy story. But <laughs> I, I came back to the States in 93. I spent three years down there uh, playing in bands. And so my friend said, hey, man, you got to check out this thing called Ultimate, Ultimate Fighting Championship. And he described it and I thought, oh, that sounds really cool. And I think I went, I want to say I went to the library or I went to a, remember you could go to a, a blockbuster video yeah. back in the day and all that. Some of you younger guys out there probably <laughs> have no idea what that is, but you used to actually have to rent a videotape and then bring it home and put it in a VHS machine. Hard to believe, <laughs> but so, somewhere I got a hold of UFC one and I just was mesmerized. Right. It, that this guy, Hoist Gracie, who was about my size, about, you know, six one, about the same weight, same body type, that he was able to defeat everybody. And I said, I got to learn this. But of course, in 1993, where do you go to learn jujitsu? Um, there was the Torrance Academy, the Machados out in San Fernando Valley had an academy. And I mean, that was kind of it. Um, but neither of those places were options for me. I was living in Florida at the time. And then we ended up moving back to California. But eventually I circled back. I did some Japanese jujitsu for a few years as kind of a stopgap um, until I was able to start learning jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu. Uh, but yeah, UFC one, Hoist Gracie. Did you, did you get addicted to it? Even, even though your, your start of your jujitsu journey was a little bit uh, funky with the Taekwondo and dirty mats, did you still like get instantly get uh, hooked on it when you first started? Yeah, absolutely. I was, so I had been a programmer, I had been an audio engineer and I had, I was not an athlete. I was someone who sat and stared at a computer screen or sat and, you know, sat behind a mixing board or I, you know, I did sedentary things. And so this was really the first real athletic thing I had done in my life. 
And I, I truly remember that first day on the mat. I walked in there. I knew I wanted to do this. I had become a fan of UFC and I, I really knew that I was going to do this, but I was not prepared for the physical intensity of it. And I remember I bumped fists with some guy. There was, there was no instruction at, in that environment. It was just guys would show up and beat on each other with horrible technique. So I remember I bumped fists with this guy who was bigger than me, stronger than me, more athletic than me. He's, he, he, he looks at me, he goes, Hey, do you want to roll? And I'm like, yeah, okay. I'm, okay. <laughs> and you know, you bump fists and he literally just crushed me, just oh. destroyed me probably literally within three minutes. I was ready to puke after that roll. I walked to the bathroom. I go into the stall and I'm looking at the toilet. No joke. I was just staring at the toilet and I'm like, okay, hold it in, hold it in Rick. Cause I, I thought I was going to puke. And, but I was hooked. I, I, I could feel that there was something powerful about this art and then, you know, a few months later, when, when I started training officially under Roy Dean, something happened in that, you know, when you're part of a new academy, there's a real energy there. And it felt like I was part of something very, very special. And then there was no choice about continuing. It was like, okay, listen, I, I have six months experience with some bad Taekwondo guys, but I'm the senior student at this gym. And so there's sort of this this ego that kind of compels you to keep training and keep getting better because you want to stay ahead of the pack. So yeah, there was never any question. I, I just knew that it was something I wanted to do. And the deeper I got, the more I got addicted to it. That's super interesting that you mentioned the starting of a new, starting with a new Academy, because that is our story. Also, Cody, yeah. our, our Brown belt, he started the school and the most senior person in there at the time was a one stripe white belt who yeah. was coming from another school and just looking for somewhere to train again. And, and he was so much better than us. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. Mr. Roy Dean talks about it. He, you know, he's like, it's not that people, when the more experience you get, it's not that people are, it's not like a superpower. People just understand more, right. Where things are going to go and, and how yeah. you're going to react. And, Rolling with someone that had maybe six months of experience when we first started was such a game changer. I was like, yeah. holy crap, man. But I think a lot of our game, um, and I'm sure you can attest to this too, when you come together, grow up together with a large group of people in jiu-jitsu, you, you all kind of just level each other up more and yeah. more and more. And uh, I, I, I give a lot of my background and my success in jiu-jitsu, what little I have, uh, because of that. You know, it's, it's a very unique experience, and it's cool knowing that you, you had it. John, what was it like for you? I just thought it was great all starting together, nobody really yeah. having any experience. You know, I didn't even think about winning losing any of that it was just it was so neat it was so new you know I, I couldn't imagine that in my own head at 39 years old my first class I was like yeah if I'm ever anywhere and something happens I could take care of myself then I go to this class and I'm getting owned and I was like okay this is great this <laughs> yeah we're gonna stick to this yeah, definitely. And like you mentioned, too, I, I came from a fitness background. And after my I thought I was pretty physically fit. I was in my mid 20s, uh, late 20s when I started. And I was like, man, I've been working out for this long. And after my first five minutes of rolling, I was like, I would literally die on the street if I got in a fight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it, it's man, it is shocking. So we are in a college town. And we get a pretty steady stream of athletes that walk through the door to try to get their free class during the school year. It, it gets crazy in, in our little academy. Um, and a lot of guys, they walk in. These guys are objectively good athletes. They're guys that have probably been good at everything physical they've ever done their entire life. They've got a chest. They've got big biceps. And they get tooled. And <laughs> I don't care how good of shape. I and mean, we've got CrossFitters that'll walk in who are objectively in way better shape than almost anybody in class. And yet they'll gas out, you know, there's an efficiency component. And what's interesting to me is that a lot of times it's these guys that are really great athletes that you literally never see again. They try one class, they never come back. And I think it becomes too big of a blow to their ego because they think, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go tool those guys, or they just want to test themselves, or they just, they think they're going to be better than they are. And, you know, jujitsu is a technology. It's not, it's uh, there's technique there. It isn't just how strong you are, how fit you are. It helps, but without technique, it doesn't help a whole lot. And sometimes those guys, they'll get tooled by some of my girls. They'll get tooled by, you know, guys that are much less physically developed than them. 
and their ego can't handle it. Whereas sometimes it's the guy, the nerdy guys that are not in shape that walk in that really get it right off the bat. They, they think, okay, this is a superpower. If I can learn this, um, this is, this is really going to help me. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting that dynamic that sometimes those fit guys, it's just too destructive to the ego. Yeah, absolutely. So do you, do you think, because you, would you say you kind of have an analytical mind being a programmer and whatnot? Would you, would you say that probably sparked your interest even more because jujitsu is such a kind of a chess game. People say chess a lot and right. So there's very, there's very, minute things that can change the outcome of, of a role. Would you say that kind of like grabbed your interest also? Yeah, very, very, very much. I think if you are, uh, if you have an analytical mind, if you are someone that can maybe see in three dimensions, right? If you're someone that might become an architect or a designer or an engineer, someone that can sort of see uh, things in three dimensions, someone who is able to make connections easily, anything sort of analytical. I think that jujitsu can be a very, very interesting art because it is a perfect convergence of the physical and the mental. It's not purely a physical endeavor. There's a huge mental component and that mental component manifests itself in so many different ways, right? But one of those ways is in how you, um, kind of how you, create the game for yourself. There's hundreds of techniques in jujitsu, how you assemble it. Travis is going to be different than how John assembles it. It's going to be different than how I assemble it. And so there's a real interesting kind of, you know, assembly that happens that I think to, for those of us that are maybe a little bit more nerdy, maybe a little bit OCD, um, it can become just this obsession. And that's really what keeps me going because I get bored with stuff really easily. I tend to be one of those guys that, I've done a lot of things in life and I tend to master things relatively quickly because I get, you know, super OCD into stuff, but jujitsu, the deeper I go, the more I realize that there are levels upon levels upon levels. And, um, you know, even the difference of a year, you're seeing things differently and it just keeps it fascinating to me. Uh Oh, so how has your game changed since you started jujitsu because you mentioned like every decade gets a little bit different. So how have yeah. you evolved as a practitioner? Well, the challenge of jujitsu as you get older is you have to learn to be effective as your body becomes less capable. I mean, you can be strong as you get older, you can, you know, maintain yourself physically to a certain extent as you get older. But the reality is your joint integrity declines, your mobility goes down, your, um, you know, reaction time goes down, your ability to feel something and act on it. It just, the machine just starts slowing down as you get older, your maximum heart rate declines my max heart rate is about 170 and, you know, we're a college town with 20 something year olds mostly. And those guys have a max heart rate of 200 and that's a massive difference in your ability to sustain output. So you have to learn to run the race with, uh, you know, like a 1970s LTD or something. (laughs) You're you're not racing with a Ferrari anymore. You don't have a Porsche. And the beautiful thing about jujitsu is, there are always technical solutions. There's always technical solutions to physical problems. And that becomes the real interesting part of the journey is I'm looking at this guy who by all objective measures is more capable than me physically. What can I do um, to slow him down? What can I do strategically? What can I do um, structurally? What can I do in terms of how I move versus how he moves to be able to dominate this person. And it, and what's beautiful about jujitsu is there, those solutions are out there. You can become more and more and more effective as you get older, but you're having to do more with less. You're having to, um, you know, you're just having to seize small windows of opportunities, whereas you used to be able to force the opportunities, right? You can't really force things as much. And it just becomes a little different game for sure. Um, but again, you can continue to be effective even as the machine starts slowing down. So I would say that's the biggest difference is you're having to do more with less. So you mentioned uh, jujitsu as kind of tools in your toolbox. Yeah. Um, 
and with with your tools having to change a little bit um when the longer you do jujitsu right like i can't go as hard as i used to even though i'm you know i'm still in my early 30s but in my mid 20s i was i could definitely tell a difference in my engine and and then being a dad now and, and all the stress that comes with having a newborn and a pregnant wife again and whatnot my tools have definitely changed quite a yeah. bit so what how would you encourage someone to that in their head they have this idea of who they are Right. But life changes that. Yeah. So how would you encourage them to not take the ego? You know what I mean? And like understand that not every day is going to be a good day. Not every day is going to you're going to be tapping everyone. There's some days you're just going to get your butt kicked. How do you encourage people to be OK? with You that? know, that's probably the hardest thing about jujitsu at any age is that when you start jujitsu, you're not going to have a lot of tools in your toolbox. And you need tools. If you're a carpenter, you need tools or, or you're not going to get the job done. And so, but when you're 20, you have generally some physical attributes. So you can sort of have some degree of success a lot of times, just e despite the fact that you don't have a lot of technique because you've got a, a big engine that you can use. But what happens as you get older is you don't have tools and you don't really have the physical attributes to sometimes match what other people are bringing to you. And the impulse is to match that intensity. Someone comes at you at 10, you know, at a one to 10 intensity, let's say they come at you at nine or 10. The easy impulse is just to match that. Everybody tries that, especially at first you, because you don't, you don't have the technical solution. So Someone comes at you this hard, you're going to match that. But I think pretty quickly you start realizing that that's not necessarily the path forward because it's just going to beat you up a lot. And um, so it, it can be a real challenge as you get older. If you're starting jujitsu at an older age, if you're in your 40s starting jujitsu, it's, you know, you can't match that intensity. A lot of guys try. I tried, you know, when I was in my forties, starting this journey, I would go just hard. I would redline myself mm -hmm. all the time. I got injured a few times. Um, some, you know, but eventually you realize that that's not, that's not a sustainable path. And then you have to confront the fact that, okay, if that's not a sustainable path, if he's coming at me at a 10 or at an eight and I can only do a six, it means that he's going to get the best of me probably nine out of 10 times. And you have to become okay with that. And that's a difficult journey. I think it's a harder journey. Jiu-Jitsu is a harder journey as you get older, because especially if you're starting when you're older, because you're not going to be as effective. Your physical attributes aren't going to let you, you know, circumvent lack of technique. You're going to truly have to dial in your technique in order to be successful against these younger guys. And it's just a long journey. Uh, and, and it's a challenge for sure, but you just have to, you just have to squash that ego and make that decision that, okay, I'm in this for longevity and it's going to be a little bit longer journey for me because I have to build that technique in order to be able to overcome my physical deficiencies. And, and that's the never ending challenge of jujitsu as you get older, it's keep continuing to make your technique better and better and better so that you can deal with harder and harder and harder physical challenges without having to match those things. I think that's exactly where I'm at right now. Because uh, those first few years, I would definitely match whatever was coming at me. Now I'm like three years in, I'm like, all right, uh, this is not working any longer. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, and it, the ego, and the hardest part is just suppressing the ego because we are all competitive. We all have egos. If you're doing jujitsu, you're competitive. You know, if you're not competitive, you're probably not doing jujitsu. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a pecking order in the dojo. You know, everyone finds their place in the pecking order and you want to retain your place in the pecking order. You want to actually move ahead in the pecking order. You don't want anyone leapfrogging you. So there's, you know, there's this real interesting dynamic in, in the dojo. Um, and it, so it's hard to let that go, but if you don't let that go, you can get real frustrated and you can walk out of the gym real dejected every night. Cause you're, you will not be performing to this standard that you're holding yourself to. That's kind of an illusion. And then jujitsu becomes a grind. So it's better to just try to give all that up 
and just come to class and, and see your friends and have fun and be playful, knowing that it's just a different journey for you. Uh, and it's tough. I've seen a lot of guys quit. I've had guys come to me like with their head hanging low. Uh, I have a student that just actually came back to training. He took about six, eight months off. And I think he quit because it was just too hard for him, mm. like emotionally, just feeling like he sucked at jujitsu. And he finally came back. And I'm so proud of this guy, man. He's, he's one of my favorite students. And I'm so proud of him because, man, he's getting good. All of a sudden, he's turned this corner and he's really getting good. Um, and he just had to go through that, you know, that sort of letting go, just letting go of the ego, letting go of any expectations of, of uh, you know, where you are in the pecking order and just training because it's something fun to do. Yeah, absolutely. So, Rick, I have a question I'd like to ask you. We have a purple yeah. belt in our class. He's 55 years old. And he'd like he's, to know skip, if... he's skipping warm-ups, right? <laughs> no, yeah. no. He actually he leads them. them. He likes leading <laughs> them. But, but he wanted us to ask, do you think that's too old for him to make it to black belt? No. No, it's, it's, it's not too old. Um, no, it, it's, it's never too old, right? It's never too old. Uh, with some caveats, I mean – it assumes that your body's working reasonably well. It assumes that you can perform physically to a reasonable level. I mean, if you're completely broken down at age 55, then you might not. Um, but if you are taking care of your body, maybe you're doing some yoga, maybe you're working on your mobility, maybe you're keeping your strength to a reasonable level. You don't have to be immensely strong, but you have to be strong enough. And, um, you know, if you, if, if everything is working reasonably well now, then, then you can certainly get to black belt. I I've known 70 year olds get to black belt and, oh, wow. and, 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 you know, they're not, they're not moving real fast, but their body is still in relatively okay shape. I mean, that's, I think the X factor, if your body's completely broken down from doing sports your whole life and your knees don't work and your hip is, you know, just not working, then maybe, maybe not. But if you're reasonably healthy, I think it's, uh, you can do it at just about any age. I'm not going to lie. Uh, his name is Billy, and he's jacked for 55 years old, has incredible flexibility, and yeah. an engine that just doesn't stop. When he leads warm-ups, we're like, great. We're like, great. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. I'm done for the day. I was like, can I be a purple belt real quick? I got to get out of this class. I ain't trying to do this. <laughs> so, I mean, guys like that inspire me, honestly. And, you know, I've always been – I get lazy in the winter months, and I don't – like, right now I'm lifting weights because it's the summer months. I, I go through this pattern where – I try to get a little more jacked in the summer months and then I get real lazy in the winter months. And I'm trying to, this, I swear this year, I said, I got to stop the madness. <laughs> I, I have to stop. And you know, what really did it is I went to California and I trained with Vlad Kulikov a couple of weeks ago and he's 46 and he would walk into the dojo, walk up to the pull-up bar and start knocking out uh, muscle ups and I was like, okay, okay, Rick, come on, Rick, you can get a little stronger. So I admire guys like your friend that they've managed to, um, you know, keep themselves flexible and strong because it's really helpful. I mean, as you get older, being strong is really helpful in you moving yourself. Ultimately, I think jujitsu is a movement art. And ultimately, the goal is to move ourselves more than moving our opponents or blocking or stopping our opponents. It's about moving ourselves. And as, as, if you're stronger and mobile and more flexible as you get older, it means you can be more efficient as you move yourself. So maybe you need to connect me with your with your friend there because <laughs> keep keep me motivated in the winter months. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he we'll, definitely we'll, keeps us motivated. Yeah, I mean for sure. I mean, I look to him and I'm like, all right, he's still doing it. I got no excuses. No excuse. Yeah, no he'll excuse. do he'll do a CrossFit class finish the class, come over and catch I hate the... guys like that. <laughs> I, I tried it. You know what? Never mind. I hate that guy. <laughs> Billy, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry. I thought, I thought you and Rick were going to be friends. but <laughs> so Rick, I, thought you... so, I thought so too a minute ago. <laughs> do you, are you a, a big yoga practitioner? Uh, I don't do yoga officially. I don't go to class. I don't do any of that, but I have done enough yoga that I kind of have a, an informal routine that I tend to do. I do it before I train. Sometimes I do it after I train. Sometimes I do it in the morning. Um, you know, down, downward dog, up, mm -hmm. up dog, some of the basic, basic poses. Um, you know, and I do wor work on that a little bit. I, I'm not as flexible as I could be. I think to be really flexible is just a real commitment to that. 
and I don't really care about that too much, but I do try to keep myself relatively limber to where I can, I can move myself relatively well. So your, your academy is called, uh, the third way, right? Yeah. Third, and, mm-hmm. and where's your academy located at? Is it? It's in Laramie, Wyoming. It's where the university of Wyoming is. Gotcha. Right. So where, what does the third way mean? Like, where did you come up with that name for your academy? So that's an interesting story. So, um, some of this goes back to some conversations that I've had with Roy Dean. I mean, he and I became close friends and we've had, you know, a million conversations about all aspects of jujitsu and the arts. And so basically there are, if you think about, um, if you think about some kind of physical attack, right? Someone goes to punch you, they go to grab you, they go to throw you, they go to whatever, whatever that physical uh, thing is that they interface with you doing, right? It's at its most fundamental level, it's just the kinetic transfer of energy, right? And I don't mean that in a hippie way. I mean, it's literally, they are transferring energy to you. If they push you, there's force, there's vector, to that. If they're trying to throw you, there's a rotational energy. If they're trying to punch you, there's force in a direction there. So it's, it's a transfer of energy. And in jujitsu, there are three ways that we can deal with an energy transfer. You can either block it or, you know, you can resist it. You can redirect it, or you can integrate, you can flow with it. You can become part of it. And so when we start something like jujitsu, the only thing you know how to do is resist. Someone pushes you, you resist. Someone pulls you, you resist. It's the most innate. It's the least efficient because it relies on physical attributes. Um, As you get better and better at jujitsu, you learn to resist in structural ways that make sense and that allow you to minimize the use of your muscular energy or to resist momentarily to elicit a response, that kind of thing. redirecting would be like someone throwing a punch, you block, you're redirecting energy. Someone goes to push you and you judo throw them, right? You're, you're redirecting that energy and that takes timing. It takes, it's a lot more sophisticated and then blending or flowing with someone's energy, which, you know, they don't really talk about this in Brazilian jiu-jitsu too much. These are concepts that you, um, you might explore in other forms of jujitsu like Aikido or Japanese jujitsu, where it's all about blending with an attacker's energy. If you think about a surfer on a wave, it's nothing but blending. You're trying to become part of the wave because you can't resist the wave. You can't redirect the wave. All you can do is become part of the wave. And that's how someone on a surfboard can, can surf a 50 foot wave. You're, you're not fighting against the wave. You're becoming part of the wave. And um, so when I was thinking of a, of a name for the academy, I just, that was kind of on my mind. And I just thought, oh, that's kind of a cool concept. The third way being integrate with someone's energy, which in some ways is the most sophisticated. Um, it's kind of the most sophisticated way of dealing with a, a, an energy transfer or an attack, right? You, you don't fight it, you become part of it in, in a way. So that's where it came from. Um, and a lot of times you, you're transferring between these ways. It isn't that you're doing one thing or another. A lot of times it's just, you resist momentarily. Now I'm redirecting. Now I'm blending. Now I'm back to resisting. Now there's constantly a transfer between these things, but I do think they are distinct strategies as we play jujitsu. So what what would you say your, your game is then, um, slow, old, slow, slow. (laughs) low to the ground, very low to the ground. (laughs) So do you, do you do more of like pressure or is there a certain yeah. like X guard or, uh, well, not really X guard, but uh, like butterflies and stuff like that. But you're, mm. you said you're more of like a pressure, pressure game. Yeah. So it, 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 yeah, I do. I play a little bit of everything. You know, I've, I, I, I like a lot of different styles of jujitsu of playing, playing the game of jujitsu. But if I'm playing my kind of a game where I'm actually attempting to get to a dominant position and get the, get the tap. So, so there's two sides to it. There's the defensive game and there's the offensive game. Defensively, I'm trying to be so structurally sound that I'm untappable. That's usually my goal when I'm playing defense. I'm trying to exploit very little windows of opportunity to get myself into a structure that allows me to be absolutely comfortable 
absolutely safe and to be in no danger of getting tapped, no matter how big, strong and athletic and skilled the person is that I'm going against. That's usually my, my strategy from the bottom. And I'm trying to not necessarily force something to happen. I'm trying to be untappable so that they have to then be probing with different um, different things to try to get an exposure. And usually in one of those movement patterns that they do, there will be an opportunity to reverse the position and get to the top. And then once I'm on top, my goal is to just be heavy and to be incremental. I'm not even worried about the submission. I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to just be stifling. So, you know, Roy Dean, he has a saying that I love. He says that the, the submission is the punctuation mark on a strategy of eliminating movement options. And so that's really what I'm attempting to do is just eliminate movement options so that the person has fewer and fewer and fewer ways that they can move until the submission is just there for the taking. And, and I never, well, I won't say never, but I try to not take a submission unless I can do it in a way that allows me to recover and not lose the position. Um, my guard passing from the top is very pressure oriented. I can't go fat, you know, I'm slower. So generally I'm looking to get a hold of a limb. Uh, I kind of don't care where that entry point is, but I generally attempt to get a hold of something. And then once I get a hold of that thing, it becomes my thing. And then I can ladder myself. I can increment myself to that next point of connection. Usually the connection points are the joints, um, ankles, knees, hips, shoulders, elbows, wrists, their major joints, which would be the hips and the shoulder line, and then the minor uh, points of control. So I'm always thinking in terms of control points. And so I try to get a hold of a joint, um, even if it's a minor position and then a minor control point, I control that. And now I can ladder myself till I can get hip control. I'm big on hip control. Um, when I trained with Mike Palladino a couple of weeks ago, he's a, this young strong athletic competitor, phenomenal game, and he's immensely athletically gifted. And when I watch him roll, I see a lot of the elements of my game. He is very, very big on hip control. And a lot of guys aren't. They're in a hurry to get to shoulder control, to get to side control or something there. And and he's very much about going from the knees to the hips and getting that hip control. And so that's generally what I do. I try to get hip control because those big, strong guys you know, sometimes they have really hard frames. You can't fight against those frames. And so I just camp out at the hips. And then I wait for that moment where I can slide myself up to that next position, which would be the shoulder line. Um, so I'm trying to just be real incremental in my game. Uh, and it's a game that uh, doesn't really require athleticism. I'm al always breathing much less hard than, than the guys that I go against. I have, you know, I'm very conscious of where my RPMs need to stay in order for me to be able to roll for an hour straight if I needed to. Uh, but, but that's my game. I'm not always successful at it. You know, if I'm going against someone who's athletic and really skilled, sometimes the strategy has to change a little bit. Um, but, but that's generally how I approach it. John, what, what's your game that everyone makes fun of you for? Oh man, I used to use a lot of wrist locks. It was the only way I could slow them down when they were coming, you know, a hundred miles an hour. So if I, if I threw a wrist lock, it seemed to make everyone slow down and, uh, it was effective for me, but I did get a lot of jokes for it, but it was effective. I love wrist locks. Um, sometimes the wrist locks, they can be distractions. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just need to be able to take someone's mind off of what it is they're doing and there you can play with their balance. You can go for a wrist lock. You can do something which, you know, you're not even fully committed to it. You just, you're just doing it because you need to prompt something. I just do it but, a lot to slow them down, just, just to slow and, them down. And sometimes though, you've got, let's say you've slapped a triangle on someone and there's those guys, I've got this kid in, in class who, I can't tap them with a triangle. My, my squeeze is good. I can tap anybody in, in that room. Um, there's something about this guy's neck. He, he's just untappable with a triangle. And so I've got his arm sitting there. Why not go for a wrist lock, right? It's a captive audience. So, so yeah, wrist locks can be really useful, even though they're dirty and nasty. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I hear. Our, our professor called them prison rules when, when John first rolled with them. Yeah, John went to go slap a wrist lock on and he like stopped mid roll, looked at him like, oh, so we're doing prison rules, huh? I was <laughs> yeah, like, you know, so, so Roy Harris, who's Roy Dean's instructor and he, he does finger locks. So he Ooh. takes it to a whole nother level. And those things are brutal, man. They are just nasty. Hmm. Yeah, I saw a submission in, uh, I think it was maybe submission underground or ADCC trials, but the guys interlocked fingers and he just like 
rolled his fingers straight back and like yeah. basically touched his forearm. And then he's like mad afterwards. He's like, well, you tapped. Like, <laughs> what do you expect, yeah. man? Like, it's it's a submission, right? Um, one of the guys we interviewed is uh, Maliki Friedman, and he talks about uh, shit jitsu, which is <laughs> is like anything. If you get a tap, it's jujitsu. Like he's like, yeah. it doesn't matter what it is. It's like yeah. if if you if it if it works, it works. You know what I mean? Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, I don't really know if that was a thing, but it worked. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the distinction I draw is between being a dick or, or not. <laughs> and I think every submission can work. So the things that I don't like would be like, you're grinding your elbows into the thighs or you're mm. grinding your knuckles into the, the rib cage or stuff like that, which is not really jujitsu. I mean, that's not a submission. That's, that's not yeah. or really, you know, the, the forearm against the trachea. Or the, you know, where you just, you're just being kind of mean. You're, you're being a little abusive with your training partners, right? I'm not into any of that stuff. I, I don't, I don't like that style, but if it's a legit um, submission, if it's a joint lock and it could be a pinky lock, if it's a joint lock and you're not just ripping at stuff, you're not trying to injure someone, you're doing it with progressive resistance, taking the arm with progressive resistance, then it's legit, in my opinion. If it's a real choke, it's a blood choke, it's not a crank, it's legit. I don't care how you got it. If it's a choke, it's a choke. But, you know, some people don't agree with that. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. I, I, uh, I've definitely, when I first started jujitsu, I would get submissions that I didn't even know what it was. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. like, wait, was that a thing? And they're like, well, I was, and also one thing that would happen is I would always, after getting a submission when we first started, I'd be like, did, did I do that right? Like, was it a neck crank or was it like, did I jerk too hard on it or something like that? Cause that's like a real concern, especially yeah. with new white belts is like, uh, you get that spazzy white belt we talk about. Yeah. And, and, and like, that's the real danger. You know, we talked about older athletes, you know, the neck, those cranks, um, you know, I've got some neck problems. I've got some low back problems. I've got some, you know, and that's the only real danger. I think getting stacked or, you know, there are certain things that can be a little bit dangerous. You go for a, uh, an anaconda and you really turn into them aggressively and you kind of get that crank going on. I mean, those things, I think for the older athletes, you got to avoid that stuff. Tap quick, tap real fast to that stuff. Don't, don't gut it out because there's some ego there. Just be like, you got me. You know, and then if it's if it's you doing it, just be progressive with the resistance. Don't don't go real hard, and, and then we're, it's all good. So, what was white belt Rick like? What was white belt like that? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> self realization moment. <laughs> it was you know it was black and white in those days. We didn't have color TV. <laughs> um. You know, it's interesting because I, I, when I started jujitsu, I was part of this little group of guys that we became kind of the senior students at the academy, even though we we're all white belts. So, you know, John Danaher talks about uh, there's the sensei, which is the instructor, the teacher. There are the senpai. So in Japan, the senpai are the senior students and the senior students are there to help their ambassadors for the sensei they they help transmit the knowledge to the lower level students. So there's the lower level students, the sem, the senpai and the sensei. And when I was a white belt within that first year, a bunch of us emerged TJ Brodeur, who's longtime training partner. He's one of Roy's black belt. Now Donald, who was Roy's first black belt, Neil, who who's a black belt today, like a bunch of us, What's interesting to me is all of the senpai that Roy accumulate, accumulated during that first year, none of us ever quit. And so I wonder, sometimes I wonder whether there is something special about being a senior student or being a, you know, even though we're white belts, I mean, it's kind of ludicrous to think that, but you were the senior white belt with that one stripe, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, but there, I think there's something psychologically about that that places maybe some added responsibility, a little, little more, I don't know, just, just a little more resilience to quitting or to, or to, you know, feeling like you have to be a leader. So to me, the white belt was, I think a lot of it was just being a sponge, learning a lot, 
when you are part of a new academy, the instructor pours a ton of energy into that first generation of students because everyone is kind of progressing at the same level. And so as an instructor, and I experienced this with my own academy, it's like you can bring everybody up in this really methodical way because you know where every single person is at because everybody's at the same level. And and then later it becomes incredibly messy. You've got people of all different levels and what does that person need? I don't, you know, it's just something completely different. So to me, I was, um, what was really special about being a white belt in that environment was number one, I became a senior student, a senpai. And number two is I got that transmission of knowledge from Roy that was just very methodical. You know, we went through that white to blue belt curriculum in such an organized way to where there was just no gaps in that, in that knowledge. And I felt that by the time I got the blue belt, I had gotten that extra special attention that you get when you're part of that first generation. So what was, what was, your blue belt demonstration, like there's a video, right? Uh, yeah, I was the first. So my blue belt demo was the very first one that Roy put on his channel. He had just launched that YouTube channel and he started making some media and uh, I became the first blue belt. Jimmy's was the first purple belt. He was already a blue belt when he, when he, he started, he was a little more advanced. Um, but I was the very first blue belt demo he, he put up there. You had to demo 50 techniques. Yeah, I think Roy had, it was like 40, 40 some. Uh, I make my students do 50. I rounded it out to 50. I did, I added some back stuff, some back escapes and some, some things that Roy didn't have in his, his demonstration criteria back in the day. I don't know if he's changed that at all these days, but yeah, it's a, it's close to 50 techniques and it's categories of techniques. He doesn't give you exact techniques to do, but you have to select them from the fundamental curriculum. And so it's like, uh, you know, four side mount escapes, four mount escapes, four guard passes, four um, arm locks from mount, four arm locks from guard, four chokes from mount, four chokes from guard. Like it's stuff like that. Leg locks, guard passes, throws, takedowns, all the real fundamental bread and butter stuff, sweeps. So what what was it like during it? What was your mindset during it? Was it as difficult as it looks or was there moments of like – Okay, I could take a break for a quick second, or is it like just nonstop the whole time? Um, you know, you you blow yourself out. I I didn't really know. I had never done one of these before, and this was a new academy. So they're um, I'm trying to think. I think he awarded a blue belt. We had a, a a judo black belt training with us in those early days, and so Roy just awarded that. He didn't do a demo. I'm trying to remember. I don't know if there were any dem any blue belt demos before mine. There was a purple belt demo that Jimmy did and that might've been about it. Um, so I didn't have any point of reference really as to what, how hard it was. And you always imagine it's always way harder than you think it is. E- even when you're drilling the techniques, you've got, Oh, I can do 50 techniques back to back. But when you're drilling, you're being mellow, you're just kind of doing them. You're, you know, taking little breaks between it's not that big a deal, but if you do 50 techniques with energy, and you're trying to put a little oomph into them. You're trying to do them real crisp and putting some energy, man, guys blow themselves out, just doing the technical portion. And then now you've got a role with four guys that are walk, coming in fresh and everybody's watching. And so the guys coming in fresh, they're bringing a competition level intensity to it. Um, and all I remember is I blew myself out after that first role, I was toast. I was completely absolutely totally toast that's really what i remember from it <laughs> you know and to some extent my purple belt demo was the same thing i i put a lot of energy into that first role i tapped that guy a whole bunch of times completely dominated him i did really well but i realized that i had screwed up when it was because <laughs> i realized okay now i've got three more guys to get through and my grips are gone i'm literally torched i'm toast i'm totally done you know but that's part of it it's it's part of, you just, you just have to get through it. When I did my black belt demo, I, I had a much better sense for how hard it was going to be. And I ended up demonstrating like 150 techniques, Mm. um, in, you know, my combos, you're doing combinations. You have to do 10 combinations, multi-technique combinations. Uh, and my goal was for every, uh, combination to have 10 techniques. So there's a hundred techniques right there, plus all the other techniques. And I put a finish on every technique and like, it was like, like 150, 160 techniques. And I knew that that was going to be really hard. And then I knew that I was going to have to, you know, get run through the ringer. So I spent like six, seven months 
taking my, my conditioning really seriously. I just hammered and hammered and hammered. I was doing hill sprints and I was like really, really taking my training seriously. Um, and even then you gas out, you always, you know, it's, it's always harder than you think it's going to be. It's hard to see, like when you watch those things on YouTube, they don't look as hard as they are. And also you're seeing it kind of abbreviated because of the editing of the video, it gets cut down and, you know, you're not seeing the fullness of it. And sometimes it's longer, you know, the roles are longer and it's just, you know, it's much more brutal. It looked pretty grueling to me. I watched Mm -hmm. it. I was like, man, that looks rough. But it's, you know, I tell you what, I love that process. I know that not every school does it. A lot of instructors just hand out a belt when you're ready and, and that's fine. That's totally cool. But there's something pretty special about having to prepare because this is your moment. It's your moment in the sunlight in front of everybody. And it's like a rite of passage that's devoted just to you. And you have to prepare, you have to prepare technically, you have to prepare physically. And, and so there's this, you know, rite of passage that I think makes it a little bit more special, a little bit more memorable. And it always um, improves your game because there are some technical demands that are placed on you that requires you to, you know, to train. And, you know, even as uh, a decent black belt or decent brown belt going to black belt, you know, I had to prepare. You can't just, you ask even your average black belt, hey, show me 150 techniques back to back to back to back. You can't do that. You have to put some thought into it and some, you know, it, it takes some work for sure to put those things together. So. I, I just think it makes it really special. And, and I think it, it helps your game jump to that next level for sure. Did you ever think you'll be a black belt? Yeah, I, I, I well, yes, <laughs> it was my goal. My goal was to get to black belt by 50. I started at 41. I'm like nine years. I got this and I was on track for that. And I, part of me thinks if I had continued to train at Roy's Academy, because I left as a purple belt. And we, we moved around a lot and, and all that. I, part of me thinks if I had stayed in that environment because the instruction was so good there and it was so technical all the time, part of me wonders whether I would have gotten to made that goal, which has gotten to black belt by 50. Um, but I ended up getting stuck at purple belt for six years in part because I had two major injuries. I had to take a couple of years off. I, I blew my back out. I tore my rotator cuff. Mm. And I quit. I had quit jujitsu. I thought I had quit jujitsu because I blew my back out. It took me a year to come back. I came back three, four months later, I tore my rotator cuff. And that took me like a year and four months to, to recover. It was a long process to get through that. And um, I, I had quit. I told, I called Roy one day. And I'm like, dude, I, I think I'm done. I think I'm done. And, and he didn't try to fight. It was funny as he, he knew I had to go through the stages of grief and so he said, it's all good, man. You had a good run. It's all good. And I think that was good because in my mind that I'm thinking, really? Well, screw you. I'm coming back. You know? <laughs> but yeah, I thought I was done. And then I got the itch and then I started training again. And, and then once I started training again, I was, I was like, I'm, I'm in this for life. I, I'm just going to see. So I don't think I ever had any doubt in my mind. I just didn't realize that it would take 15 years instead of, you know, eight or nine but that's, you know, the reality of being an older athlete. It's just going to take you longer. Can I ask on uh, your shoulder surgery, what kind of rehab were you doing? Was it uh, like jujitsu or were you seeing a specialist or how that rehab? No, I, you know, it's one of those things where it took a while before, you know, my shoulder had been sore for a long time and I was trying to train through it. And um, it eventually got to the point where I couldn't put my shirt on anymore. It was like, mm. okay something's wrong here. And I went, got it checked. And of course, you know, they, they're not going to MRI you. They're not going to do anything right away. They, they send you to PT for three months. And so, you know, it's just a waste of time. I knew my shoulder was really messed up. PT did nothing but make it worse. And then finally the MRI, okay, yep, it's torn. We can fix it. And man, it was just painful. I, I don't know what it is about shoulders, but that was just, I remember when I started PT after surgery, I would literally cry. They they're manipulating my arm and I've got tears rolling down my, my face. Cause it just hurts so bad. And that range of motion is real limited and they're trying to stretch it out and get that range of motion going again. And, and that just took a long time. I was cleared to train again after about a year, but I wasn't pain-free until about a year and four months. And uh, some of that's, you know, you get older, it's just stuff takes longer to heal. And, 
it was just, uh, yeah. And I, I tore my other shoulder. I've got a, a permanently torn labrum in my shoulder. And this was the one I, you know, I went to the doctor and he knows I'm a jujitsu instructor. He knows it's going to be hard for me to take time off. And he said, look, you know, there are guys that just, they literally live with a torn labrum, their body kind of re, you know, adapts. It sort of reconfigures itself internally to compensate for that that tear let's just see how it goes and i got some some cortisone shots for about a year and shoulder actually feels okay there's there's some little planes of motion that you know some ranges of motion that are a little weird um but i think it's a permanently torn shoulder and i'm just not going to do anything about it but we shall see i've already had my right shoulder rebuilt but that was before jujitsu i'm about to get the left done in a month and i was like yeah maybe i can come back in three or four months We'll see. Interesting. He's basically a cyborg. <laughs> yeah, it's you know everyone's different, and it sort of depends what you're having doing, what you're, you're having yeah. done. If it's just you've got bone spurs and stuff, they have to, you know, shave off of there. I mean, certain things you can come back pretty quickly from um, repairing tears. Sometimes those take a while to get that strength back. Mm. Yeah, is that probably that was probably your most significant injury then, as uh, in your your journey, right? Since you had to take so much that time that in my my low back, I had a microdiscectomy where I blew a disc out, Ooh. and it uh, it was pressing on the sciatic nerve, and I literally lost the ability to um, to control my calf, my left calf. It was like it was dead. I couldn't will it to do anything. If you asked me to get up on my tiptoes on my left side, I literally couldn't. It was a weird thing, man. You're I'm like, okay the calf should be doing something, but I couldn't will it to do anything. Uh, so yeah, that was my first big injury. And that one wasn't too bad to come back from because it's just a disc. They chop it out. sew you back. So it's more about just once, you know, sort of heals up, but it's that, that wasn't too bad, but it, it took a, a while because there too, it, you know, they send you to rehab. They, they send you to PT at first, by the time they finally cut you open, it's a long time. And I was debilitated at that point. I would just lay in a fetal position with my nerve just burning down my leg, like mm. really bad. It was pretty bad at the end. So did you ever get any, did you ever compete uh, in your jiu-jitsu journey? Yeah, I competed a bunch as a blue belt, uh, including I went to the U.S. Open. Roy, me, and TJ, we went to the U.S. Open right before I got my purple belt. And... um I was in the wrong way category. I didn't cut. And I realized I made a huge mistake. The minute I walked in, I, I took bronze, but I realized that I, I made a tactical mistake because everybody was bigger than me. And um, so, yeah, I competed a bunch of blue belt. I got my purple belt um, shortly after that. And we ended up leaving Oregon. I moved to Hawaii for a year and there weren't really any competitions in Maui that year when I lived there. And then after that, we ended up in Maine of all places. We were a little transient for, quite a few years. And then shortly after that, I blew my disc out and then I tore my shoulder. And then by the time I came back, you know, I was getting a little older and I thought, you know, I'm not sure if I've got, you know, my, I think my competition days might be over because there, you know, there's a certain amount of risk associated with it. And it's not always the competition. It's sometimes the training leading up to the competition that has to be much more intense. And uh, so for myself, I made a decision that, um, I enjoyed the competitions I did at blue. I'm glad I had those experiences. I think they've helped me as a coach to, because I've, I've felt, you know, that intensity. I felt what that feels like to, you know, to be in that, those, uh, to have those nerves or whatever. But I think my competition days are over. It was funny. I, right when I got my black belt, I had the urge to compete again because I had spent six, seven, eight months, like really getting myself into good shape. And I, and I felt pretty good even though I had torn my, my shoulder during that process. Um, and part of me was like, maybe I should compete. And then I started looking up like the master's worlds. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, the guys in my weight category at my age literally got their black belts like 25 years ago. <laughs> you know, these, these are all like, it's a literal who's who, like the names we all recognize competing at that. And I'm like, you know, maybe, maybe I should jump in with those guys just to feel, you know, their game and all that. But, you know, I've dabbled with the idea of maybe competing again, but man, I'm getting old and, you know, my back problems continue and all that. So we'll see. The nice thing is about when you compete as black belt is your first thing in the morning, right? You're the very first people to go. <laughs> so you show up, you, then you're good for the day. Yeah, <laughs> and everybody should be in your weight class, your age class. So that's nice. You, you, can, go, you can go have brunch afterwards. Yeah. And the hot tub, right? <laughs> it's, almost, it's almost easier than uh, actual class, you know, where you just yeah. pair up with anyone. 
That's funny. So what would your advice be for a brand new white belt? Patience. Just patience, suppression of the ego. Um, understand that you are going to be really bad at jujitsu for a while. Everyone's terrible at jujitsu at first. Uh, you know, because it's a, this is a technology and it takes a while to develop enough tools that you can actually play the game reasonably competently. And a lot of people get real frustrated in the early stages. You know, people talk about how you quit at blue belt, the blue, you know, it's, that's the belt where everybody quits at, but that that's not really true. Most people quit at white belt. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of people quit at blue belt and, and that's kind of a, for, for different reasons, I think, but yeah, I think the people that quit at white belt, it's just, a, it's a hard journey. This might be the most difficult thing you've ever done because it's not just a physical challenge. There's a huge mental component to it. And, and it's hard. It's unlike anything. It's a very unique experience and, but it's transformative. If you can stick with it, if you can just, just, you know, don't get too high when you do well, don't get too low when you don't do well, just middle path. Eventually, once you start getting good, it becomes more and more fun and more rewarding. It gets progressively more fun as you develop skill because then you're playing it more like a game. So I tell all my new white belts to walk in. I'm like, listen, you're going to suck at first. This is normal. Don't feel like it's you uniquely sucking because everybody sucks. Even good athletes suck. And um, you just have to embrace it. Understand that this is a rite of passage and you'll get there. You just have to be willing to do the hard work. And it's extremely rewarding once you're able to um, make some of those epiphanies and have some of those successes and then begin getting the tap, begin learning how to get out from bad positions. And, and uh, it can be an incredibly rewarding. It can be a transformative experience. It can change people's lives. You know, I've seen many lives change through jujitsu. So John, you got anything else? You know, if if I had a, you know, those of us that do jujitsu and we like it, we, we tell everyone about it, right? We're always trying yeah. to bring people into the fold. The Well, my friends are mostly my age now, right? They're all uh, early 40s, mid 40s, and they've never heard of jujitsu. And I, I talk to yeah. them, man. Travis has met a few. I have a couple now that come to class. But the general answer I always get from the, the no's are, I'm too old and I got too many injuries. Yeah. And I have just not had a good answer for them when they when they come back at me with that, other than... I'm the same age and I have my own injuries and I, and I continue to go, but yeah. you know, that's, that's the big hangup. I've never had a good answer for those. Well, the, the too old thing is not a valid excuse. Uh, it, it's, it's really not. If, if you have, you, you need a good training environment where people are, are able to dial that intensity down. If you are an older guy, you're in your forties on up, and you jump into a really competitive school where they're just telling you to go hard all the time. No one takes a round off. It's just hammer, hammer, hammer. Then that can be dangerous and it can be, it's too much. It's just too much for most people. So, so it, assuming the environment has a range of people that are training the right way, they're not trying to tear each other's heads off. Then the, the age thing is, is not a valid excuse. Um, injuries, you know, I guess it depends on what the nature of those things are. If it's just, you've kind of beat yourself up a little physically again, you, you know, there's, there are ways to navigate around that, but it requires a certain discipline in the way that you train. It requires a certain suppression of the ego. So you're not trying to match the intensity. It requires having training partners that are willing to dial it down. It requires you being willing to tell people, no, I can't, I can't roll with you. You're just too out of control. I'm going to roll with that guy. You know, you have to kind of pick and choose who, who your role, role with. And if you're in an environment where all of that is cool, then yeah, there's, there's no really good valid excuses in my opinion. I definitely think our school has all of those values. Also, mm-hmm. we have a couple people where uh, they do roll a little bit rougher, but if yeah, there always are. There are always those guys for sure. We've got those guys, and you can preach all you want as the instructor, and you know they're they're bulletproof. They're twenty something. They don't they they don't get it. But but I think as an older athlete, or you know even thirty eight can be older. In you know you're not in your prime anymore. You're past your prime. Um you know, being, being willing to be a little more protective of your body and being a little selective with the people you roll with and, 
you know, as long as you've got an instructor that's cool with that and, and it's a good friendly environment, mostly then it's fine. It's usually fine. Yeah. Uh, our friend Billy, I feel like sometimes <laughs> he's like, like, Billy, just don't roll with that person. man. Just don't roll with them. <laughs> like, listen, yeah. don't believe me. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. cause, uh, Billy, you know, being a little bit, uh, older gentleman too, it's like, uh, he, he, he can't be prone to injuries. I've noticed, I've seen him a couple of times get hurt in class. And after every yeah. time I'm like, I'm so sorry, man. Like, like well, listen, I, I roll with everybody. And I think what happens is that eventually you become skilled enough and you've, you're able to really suppress your ego to such a great extent that there's nothing you're trying to prove. And so a lot of times I will roll with the guys that are super aggressive, but I'm just playing possum. I'm just turning myself into a little cocoon. You can attack me. I'll just defend. I'm not trying to match anything on you. If you leave something out there that I can grab fine, if you don't fine, if you don't like it becomes something else. And, you know, your friend, Billy, maybe that's a, you know, when you're purple belt, you, you're, you're skilled. You're definitely a skilled person for sure in jujitsu, but sometimes you're not, I mean, there's, you need to go just a little farther so that you can really dial back the intensity and still be able to be in the game with those guys that are very, very aggressive and, and, and keep yourself safe and still be effective, even though you're, you're playing a very um, primarily a safe game, you know? Well, Rick, thank you so much for your time today. This interview was great. There's a lot of good information that you gave us and your perspective on your jiu-jitsu journey and then especially for brand new people. And just it's it's been great, man. Thank you very much for your time today. John, you got anything else? I appreciate it. It was motivating. I like yeah, it. Yeah, I appreciate talking to you guys. I know Roy Roy appeared on your podcast and, and you guys seem like really great guys and and you're you know, you're doing a good, good thing for the community and for jujitsu as a whole. So I, I applaud what you're doing and it was really nice to meet you guys. And, and, uh, this was really enjoyable from my perspective. Hey, I greatly appreciate it, Rick. Thank you for the very nice words. So thank you guys so much for listening at home. Uh, we don't have anything else, John. I do not. Thank you. All right. And remember guys, uh, no oil checks here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>